God, those communists are amazing. All right. Welcome back to Turnlift's podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him. Jaren, he, him. And our special guests tonight are Romero. Uh, Romero, your pronouns are he, him? Yes, correct. He, him. Let's make sure. And James, are your pronouns also he, him? Uh, yes, correct. Cool. So our guests, Romero and James, are um, friends of ours from online, I guess. Romero, I actually don't know. How did we get in contact with you? I think it was through email, reaching mm-hmm. out about Nicaragua. I just recently, a few months ago, released a documentary on my channel. It's called Nicaragua Against Empire. It's a two-hour documentary. I went to Nicaragua in March to participate in a 13-day delegation chronicling the impact of sanctions, U.S. imperialist sanctions on Nicaragua and to highlight the history of the Sandinista revolution. So you can check that out on my YouTube channel. Just look up my name, Ramiro, R-A-M-I-R-O. I'm the only person with that name on YouTube. And you can find the documentary. It's up there, Nicaragua Against Empire. I also went to Nicaragua in July a few weeks ago for the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista revolution. And I just released a video of my channel as well, interviewing people on the street, explaining why they support the Sandinista revolution. I spoke to former guerrillas, the youth, to women, to all sorts of people of Nicaraguan society. So I highly suggest you all check that out. A lot of interviews there. And it was really inspiring to be there in person and the the gains of a revolution that is very often overlooked in, in the Western left. Wow. Very cool. So that's my bad. I didn't realize I didn't touch base enough with Sterling beforehand. Uh, Sterling, Romero here just told me that he has a documentary about Nicaragua, which I did not realize like when I started doing the intro. <laughs> yeah, that's, no. that's on me. That's on me, yes. Yeah, all right. But just to let our listeners know, so yeah, Romero here has a documentary about Nicaragua. Um, and that goes into not only the revolution of Nicaragua, but the history and then also into the modern day, correct? Correct. Yeah. It touches everything from 1821. So this year is the bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of Nicaraguan independence from 1821 all the way through the 1800s, the impact of the gold rush, William Walker, the Confederacy attempt to enslave Nicaragua, all the way up until the 1900s, the rise of Sandino and his collaboration with communists around Latin America and the Caribbean all the way into the 60s and the 70s. So it goes pretty in-depth into the history and also shows a fresh 21st century look into what Nicaragua is like today in their process of building socialism. Hell yeah. Okay, well then, in that case, uh, Sterling, you were away for a second, but I was telling Ramir here that we're probably going to do multiple episodes on Nicaragua since I you know, found out how much more there is to talk about than I realized. Yeah. Same thing with Cuba, how I initially intended to be one episode and it just kind of ballooned into yeah. several. So um, that actually works out well since Ramiro has kind of a time frame tonight. So we'll, we'll just do as much as we can of this movie. And then when Ramiro has to go, he can. And then we'll have him back and I will watch his documentary before we actually have him back on again so that, you know, we could talk about Same. that. So that'll work out well. But then in the meantime, uh, James, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our listeners where they can find your TikTok and your social media and stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's nice to meet all you guys. Uh, and sure. Ramiro, that this is a really cool documentary. I love watching documentaries, so I'll definitely be checking this out too. But yeah, I, I'm on TikTok mostly. Yeah, just look me up. Um, you, you'll see it. My name's James Rewald. Last name, R-E-H-W-A-L-D. But yeah, just been kind of, you know, I never really expected to get into this space of like making content. 
it kind of just happened. I feel like the pandemic took off and after hearing about TikTok for so long, I'm like, fuck it, I'll just, you know, download it. And then I'd started making jokes and like one of them went viral. I was like, oh, okay, other people are into it. Then, you know, with all the crazy hellscape of 2020 and 2021 ongoing, it's just kind of been my natural way to vent. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. I, I'm, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, and for listeners who aren't familiar, James Rewald has that video on TikTok where it was the very succinct, like, but still somehow thorough explanation of what the CIA has been up to for the last 50 or so years, where he held a bunch of Nerf guns and posed as the Mujahideen and also the CIA, like leading all the way up from intervening in Afghanistan against the Soviets all the way up to 9-11. And it's just, it's just so good because it's exactly what our entire goal here is, is like trying to break down history and complex concepts of like political economy and things like that in a way that like young kids can understand it and get radicalized and realize like how much they're being lied to about the very basics of what's going on around them in their world today. So yeah, good on you for that. What's up, Jaren? I have a really rare thing for me here. I'm going to plug a podcast real quick. Hey, hey, Jaren's pulling the mic. It's um, J-R-E, baby. Behind the (laughs) bastards, dude. Behind the Bastards, the the yeah. Dulles Brothers episode. If you want to really go in on like what's up with the CIA, check out the Dulles Brothers episode on Behind the Bastards. Yeah, Jaron would recommend a podcast by another anarchist. <laughs> are are they really? I didn't know that. Yeah, Robert Evans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I guess I would do that. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Cool. So um, what we're going to do tonight is a little different. I'm going to stream a documentary that I found on YouTube. It's just a PBS documentary. Um, you guys can easily find it. It's called War on Nicaragua. But picture this as being like, you know, that day you come into high school and the teacher rolls in the TV that's like uh, strapped down to a cart so they can't fall off of there because they don't feel like teaching that day. That's what we're doing tonight. I'm going to just watch We're going to watch this video and then we're going to pause it whenever we want to comment on it. But uh, I think it's actually a really good introduction to the entire situation in Nicaragua for our less familiar audiences. I, I will say, like, before doing any research for tonight, I knew nothing about Nicaragua. I just knew that there was a leftist uprising. The CIA got involved. The Contras were the the far-right group that the U.S. funded and gave arms to, and Iran was involved somehow. But that's really all I knew. I really knew nothing about it. And now, after watching some of this, it all makes sense. It all falls into a very familiar and very recognizable pattern that we will all understand in just a little bit. So let's just get right into it here. On Frontline, Nicaragua, where the U.S. is acting against a government it doesn't like and fighting a war by proxy. At the beginning, people came in full of vim and vigor and thought, you know, here we are, the, the dragon slayer. The political war in Washington and the real war in Nicaragua. This is the diabolical nature of the thing, using people to wage a war with little political cost for the adventurer. Okay, so now there's two characters. That falls it here because... Not just two characters. There's several characters. That's the thing I noticed about this. I've watched this documentary like three times by now. There's all these characters, and they are very, they almost fall into like tropes. So the first guy you heard who said everyone's full of vim and vigor, he's like uh, the U.S. guy who's pushing the same thing like the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq. Like, we'll be hailed as liberators, and then it doesn't go so well. Who could have ever seen that coming? And now this guy here that you're hearing, this guy makes the most sense. Out of everybody in this documentary that they interview, he makes the most sense. He has the most reasonable takes. And he is like a politician in Nicaragua, and he's just talking about what the U.S. is actually doing, why it's wrong, and why it's all fucked up. Tonight, war on Nicaragua. 
In the months to come, as Congress investigates the Iran arms scandal, we will follow in numbing detail a trail of arms and money from the White House to Tehran, from Switzerland to Miami, and finally, it seems, to Central America and the Nicaraguan Contras. When the scandal first broke, frontline correspondent William Grider was in Nicaragua examining a different story, but one that he believes really lies at the heart of the crisis in the White House, a story that the congressional committees will not examine in full, the story of the policy that led up to the present scandal. His report is called War on Nicaragua. The war is fought in places like this, Miraflores, a mountaintop cooperative in northern Nicaragua. Here, when they are planting beans or working the cornfields, one peasant must always stand guard. From the cover of mountain mists, the Contras often attack. When the Contras came, the women were confused and afraid and thought that they were our own people. One of the Contras looked into a window in the house where the women were hiding. He probably thought that the guards were inside, so he threw a grenade through the window. He killed five people altogether, including two children and a teacher. The child who died was my son and the teacher my sister. I want to stop it there because obviously that's incredibly brutal. It's incredibly horrific. Like they're interviewing this guy who lost his son and his sister in one attack from the Contras. But look at the notorious enemy that these Contras are fighting, like the communists. They're a cooperative in the mountains harvesting beans. Like that's the diabolical enemy that anti-communists have to fight all the time. You got to fight these. Like for our listeners who can't see the, the footage, they are impoverished. Like they're wearing, you know, hand-me-down clothes. They're living in the mountains. They have rifles slung over their shoulders and they always have to stand watch when it's foggy because the Contras can come out of nowhere just to murder the women and children. Like that's the nature of the anti-communist versus communist struggle right there. I'm glad you pointed that out. I um, was actually in that region. It's, it's funny enough because my family is from Honduras, which is neighboring to Nicaragua. So Honduras is obviously a U.S. neocolonial state that has been used, especially in the 80s, as a bastion for attacking leftist movements all over Central America. Honduras was used against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. That's where the Contras were trained. Actually, the Contras were trained in my dad's hometown in Choluteca, which borders that very same region where they're at right now in Miraflores. And they also used Honduras as a platform to attack El Salvador and Guatemala, where communist movements by the indigenous, Afro-indigenous peoples were organizing against U.S. imperialism. And I visited that very same area a few months ago of Nicaragua, where they grow coffee. That area is very famous for coffee growing uh, beans. And the Sandinista revolution is based in that area. And the atrocities that the Contras committed there, killing families. I mean, my, my dad has told me so many stories of what the Contras would do. They would, they would shoot up heroin. They would do coke. They would go and kill anybody who had a book mm -hmm. of Karl Marx or Lenin at the time. They would beat people up. I mean, these are far-right fascist drug lords that they supported in Honduras and Nicaragua. 
and they killed and murdered so many people. And in the documentary that I produced, uh, Nicaragua Against Empire, I have interviews with people from that very region who talk about the accomplishments of the Sandinista revolution in land redistribution. And that very land where this comrade is speaking from, a lot of those lands have been uh, redistributed to indigenous peasants and so much history. So I think that's a good clip. And that very region is the homeland of the Sandinista revolution. So I just want to wanted to give that context. Yeah. No, thank you for doing that. I mean, that's really what led me to think that we should even stream this entire movie tonight is because I was watching this and thinking over and over again, how many clips I wanted to cut just to put in here for context and everything. And it ended up being so much of them. Like we might as well just stream the whole thing. Um, but that actually works out well. Again, like I said, we'll have you on so we can talk more about the history of it because Again, reading about the history, yeah, it really involves a lot of about coffee production, um, U.S. interests, like trying to maintain the interest of businesses they had there. And then, yeah, Sandino is a, is a big character, even though he is way before the Sandinistas themselves. But they purposely used his name because he was very much an inspiration for their, their class struggle. So I'm, I'll get back to the video and listen to it. Oh, go ahead, Jaron. No, I was just going to add on to that. And I'm sure this is only partial information because I'm no expert on it. But I mean, Nicaragua is, is one of the poorest nations on the planet. And they, they have just a plethora of resources. So it's yeah. not just the geography of, of the U.S. wanting to carve a path for trade through Central America, which they ended up doing anyway, like we talked about. But it's also the fact that, you know, as you said, there's coffee, there's beef, which is exported to the United States. I'm just reading off a list here. Sugar is a huge one. Um, Western empires were literally built on sugar. And, you know, a ton of precious metals, textiles, a million different things. It's, it's a very rich country, but it's a very poor country. So that's yeah. why it's always central to, uh, you know, the, the American imperialism. No, we'll, we'll see just how impoverished this country was for a very long time, like to the point where you would think, just viewing it from an outside perspective, you'd think this country wasn't even worth considering for American empire because they had so little and not even like a huge population of people. Um, but when you, see, when you factor in the resources, that's where it really starts to make sense. Uh, go ahead, Sterling. Yeah, no, I don't know. And I'm jumping in kind of late, so I apologize say something someone else has already said but just kind of going off of what jaron was saying like with the minerals i mean that was the deal that the cia that oliver north made with the contras was literally in the it's in cia documents like they had a contract that it once the contras succeeded the u.s would get mineral rights to to their harbors it would basically mm -hmm. become u.s property at that point go ahead ward yeah to quote michael parenzi there are no poor countries you know, these countries are not poor. They're overexploited. Yeah, they're rich in resources. That's that's the first mistake. How dare you have those minerals that the U.S. needs so badly? And let, let's not uh, if we're talking if we're talking about the resources, let's not forget about their uh, tobacco also, which was top tier. Even Fidel made a point to always compliment the Nicaraguan. Uh, really? Tobacco. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a big fan. Yeah, I'm a big cigar guy and all of my favorite cigars are Nicaraguan. Hmm. All right, cool. Let's move on here a little bit. No Americans are fighting or dying here. Yet it is very much America's war. Six years into the conflict, some basic questions still need to be asked. Why is the United States engaged in this struggle? What is different about this war? Why these people? Why here? There are only three million people in Nicaragua, 
Per capita income is $720 a year. This is what is known in Washington as third world poverty. Yet these people live close enough to the United States to see how we live and to mimic the symbols of our prosperity. Did you hear that? Just to reiterate, 3 million people per capita income, $720 a year. That's insanity. Like that, how impoverished the country is and then the U.S. still feels the need to put down a populist leftist uprising in that country because it's that threatening, even in a place that, that they call third world just in a documentary. As outdated and you know, bad as that term is now. Yeah, it, it just goes perfectly in line with the capitalist rhetoric of like, oh, the communists are so evil and powerful, but at the same time, they're all, they're weak and they'll fail on their own. Yeah. Since July 1979, Nicaragua has been ruled by the revolutionary Sandinista Front, based a government that has committed the nation to radical change, for better or worse. You're asking how life has changed since the revolution? Twice as good, 40,000 times. We have land, we have money, we have technical knowledge. Comparado con lo que se sudor, Compared to what we had yesterday, when we had nothing, we are the owners of the land today. Now that's a point that this documentary kind of blows through, but we will definitely talk about more when we have our next episode talking about the history of it, because that's when we get into like the collectivization and the redistribution of land and uh, resources and stuff like that, because that will really come into account there. It's very much like, for anybody who listened to our series on Cuba, they increased the literacy, you know, they gave people health care, they gave people the things that they actually needed. Um, like the working class people actually needed and they were able to do that because they just killed all the fucking right wing rich people. Like, it's amazing what happened when you do that. Yeah. And Comrade has on like a really dope Guayabera. Like <laughs> she's getting better. Uh, is that his hat? I don't know what that is. No, his shirt. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm so white. Dude. <laughs> Painfully. As I was telling my friends, a little bit of everything. The talk is un poquito. Many feel threatened by the changes, including some in Nicaragua's middle class, like this woman who owns her own bakery. Now you pay for everything. Everything is taxes. Everything is limited. Everything is rationed. You go to buy something for your family, and they give you a little loaf of bread to last for a week. Lies. They say things that make them sound good, so people will say they're good. But they're lies. Now, okay, again, I've watched this several times. This is the only woman who trashes the Sandinistas. And you notice they started, they introduced her as she owns her own bakery. It's a business owner. Of course, this is the person who's going to trash the Sandinistas and the leftist uprising. Yeah, and the first thing she critiques is taxes. Yeah, I can't, I can't exploit people. I have to pay my workers. Oh, no, I have to pay for things. What's up, Simon? Also, when she says they come and you get given one loaf of bread to feed your family for a week, like, ma'am, that's you. You're the one giving them the one loaf of bread. (laughs) (laughs) You are the baker. Did you forget what your job was? Bake some more bread, lady. They are monsters of evil. The Sandinista revolutionary goals are planted in barren soil. It is a nation of peasants who work with oxen instead of tractors, machetes, instead of machines what's up sorry hey sorry sorry to stop it but just this whole bakery thing i gotta i gotta rant now go for it it's like 
That is exactly what capitalists and business owners would do if we had a revolution in our country is the people that actually do own like the, the factories and stuff, they, they would purposefully hit the brakes like this, this bread owner. And I mean, obviously, we don't know the exact uh, case that's going on with her, but it is very likely that she slows down her own bakery just to try to make a point at how the socialist model is failing so that she can try to use that as a, as a counter-revolution. And that's exactly what would happen here. Everyone would pump the fucking brakes that are against it just to try to make the fucking point. And all they're doing is hurting themselves and their community. Would you, would you say she'd be kind of like a kulak and hoarding her grain and shit? Like, who could have imagined? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, nobody, don't hesitate to like put your hand up if you want me to stop it at any time. That's what we're here to do. Go ahead, Romero. I think something that's important to point out as well is that in the 21st century, because there were two stages of the Sandinista revolution, 1979 to 1989. And this documentary was produced during the first stage after the armed struggle and after the Sandinistas came to power and through guerrilla warfare. And at this time, we have to remember the context as well, because I think a lot of Western leftists tend to think that once you take state power, you're given a magic wand. And with this wand, you can create anything you want. You can build any society you want at the snap of a finger. And we have to remember, and I'm glad that you prefaced this conversation with the amount of poverty. Nicaragua was the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti before the revolution for many years. So even though the Sandinistas won state power, there were still tremendous amounts of obstacles to overcome in terms of building the means of production. I mean, we're talking about society that they even mentioned in the documentary that is largely peasant society that is very feudal that hasn't even entered the capitalist stage. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at Latin American countries like Mexico or Argentina or Brazil or Colombia, they've already entered the capital stage of development. They have industry. There's more development in general. But when you're talking about the poorest of the poor, countries like Nicaragua that haven't even fully entered the stage of capitalism, the hurdles of building socialism and, and constructing a prosperous society are extremely hard to overcome in a, in a matter of years. Plus, when you're literally being confronted with right-wing death squads who are bombing the crap out of you. So I think that context is so important because yeah. that's not to say that things are perfect, right? And, and it's the same with Cuba as well. After 1959, you had the Bay of Pigs, you had the blockade, so many obstacles that are put on socialist countries after the revolution. And I think many people in the West just assume that once you win state power, that's it. You can do whatever you want and you build the society you want. But you have to keep in mind the challenges that people face. And so there are obviously going to be people like that lady who are petty bourgeois, who are like, you know, they're trying to do this or that. But I think that people in the West have to understand that nothing is perfect, right? It's not a paradise yet. It's a construction of a, a progress but it'll take years to overcome. And a lot of that is because of U.S. imperial sanctions. And that's why people in Nicaragua and in Cuba and Venezuela as well will say to U.S. communists and leftists, your role in the belly of the beast is to oppose sanctions, to oppose the war, because that helps us, that helps us build socialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. What you got, Ward? Are you saying that there's not an instant communism button? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, no. For, first of all, first of all, it's not a wand. It is a instant communism button, and President Xi is actually hoarding that. At the <laughs> he just doesn't want to press it. He's just trying to make the he's mad. <laughs> no, but I mean, in all seriousness, again, going back to this is something that we're going to touch on, or at least I'm going to harp on at every turn because it is such a familiar pattern. But that's basically how it works: is that you have this populist leftist uprising. They succeed. They have a revolution. They take over the government. They give back land to the peasants. They actually improve people's material conditions. They help the working classes and everything. And what do they have to do to maintain that? They have to shut down the propaganda wherever it's rising up. And that may be in the newspapers that are funded by the CIA. That may be in the radio stations that are funded by the U.S. and the CIA and other imperialist interests. And then, of course, when they do that, when they try to shut down the far right wing fascist propaganda, then they get called anti-freedom. They get called anti-free speech, anti-this. They get called totalitarian. They get called authoritarian. We see this over and over and over again. Go ahead, Jared. That's always the Trojan horse. That's always the Trojan horse. And, and the thing is, yeah. it's like, okay, so yeah, there's no instant communism button. This is a construction project, all of that. But the thing is, is that there, even in these countries where these things happen, there are folks who expect there to be an immediate drastic change to material conditions. And that expectation, it, it primes some people for radicalization to the right. And that's taken advantage of immediately by Western powers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not as familiar in Latin America with this phenomenon, but I am familiar with it in places like Ukraine, which is a hotbed for right wing activity. And it's directly because, you know, as as soon as the USSR is in there and they're trying to improve material conditions, there are people that it just wasn't fast enough for them. You know, and this bled all the way into Op Gladio and all the way into the modern day where we have Svoboda and the Azov Battalion who are literally neo-Nazis that are still being fueled off of that old USSR resentment. And the way that the United States facilitates this, this is probably the case with the Contras too, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but they're able to isolate people who have that potential, put them in a rhetorical echo chamber, and then arm the shit out of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting strong Parenti vibes from what Jaron was just saying, ironically enough, because, again, this just goes back to that same thing. Like the anarchists and all the liberals the day after the revolution are like, do the fascists have their radio stations? Do the fascists have their newspapers? Do the fascists have free speech and all their platforms? It's like, no, and neither should they. Like, fuck off. Like, Yeah, and like what Jaron was saying, I mean, that's the more hands-off approach of the CIA. Like, that's not even their textbook. Like, that's their... If we're not trying to get too involved, like they typically, and with the Contras, I think it was a little, little bit more involved than that. But yeah, yeah that's their just base. It, like if we're not going to go in and like drop a bunch of money, we're at least going to fund some crazy neo-Nazis and make sure they know how to meet each other and make mm-hmm. sure they know how to share their ideas. Like that is guaranteed base level have to do that. It's just whether or not they get more involved in that. Yeah. All right, let's do a little more of this. Like the other small nations of Central America, it is a country that is devoutly Catholic, underdeveloped, desperately poor. These are the people who must learn a new national anthem, proclaiming their own independence and their attitude toward the U.S. as well. The Yankee, they sing, the enemy of mankind, Nicaragua is a country with only five elevators, yet it became a central preoccupation of American foreign policy. The 
questions that usually dominate Washington debate about the nature of the Sandinistas and their political opposition in Nicaragua are not the focus of this program. Instead, we will examine a more provocative question about ourselves, about how the United States claimed the right to intervene against a sovereign government it didn't like, and about the methods it decided to use this time, both at home and on the battlefield. It all started six years ago, in the first days of Ronald Reagan's presidency. Of course. Not based. God, I hate that guy. Speaking of Nicaraguan cigars, I just got in another shipment. Hey, Is that what that box was? Yeah. <laughs> well, that and uh, like 1,200 rounds of 556. Five, I was going to say Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Possibly. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't opened it. I don't know. Um, so, Sterling, I think you may have been uh, up when I was saying this, and maybe Jaron too, but there are very distinct characters in this uh, documentary. Um, one was, in, a couple were introduced in the intro. Um, another one is going to be this, like, Lieutenant General who's like, it's such a trope. Like, I mean, it seems like somebody should have written this guy, but it's great. I, I can't wait till we get to him. But then also they feature Reagan. And Reagan is particularly satanic in this one, so it's going to be good. 1981. The new president's promise to restore America's strength is designed to erase lingering memories of Vietnam and to demonstrate to the Soviet Union that America is... Certainly, you can't do visual gags. It's a, it's a podcast. You gotta, yeah. you gotta say that there was there was Reagan sitting at the top of a limo with his yeah. first lady going through like the square in, in Washington D.C. and then you know Sterling just shouted some like real Fed shit right there for a second there. Allegedly, <laughs> he, he was looking real. He was looking real JFK in that in that uh, frame. Yeah, I mean he's literally to the left, sitting out, standing out the sunroof of this limo uh, right next to Nancy. <laughs> People came in full of vim and vigor and thought, you know, here we are, the, the dragon slayers. We're going to go out and slay all the dragons, and Ronald Reagan is going to go down as the greatest president around. And I mean, Ronald Reagan didn't lose that election. He won it with a fairly nice mandate, and his whole campaign was anti-Soviet. No way. Ronald Reagan's campaign being anti-Soviet? No way. No way in hell that they thought they were going to be seen as liberators in uh, Nicaragua, and it didn't work out so well. No way. So I'm John Carbo was a foreign policy advisor to the new administration. Of course. We're saying stay out of our hemisphere. The Monroe Doctrine still applies. Oh, does it? The Monroe Doctrine? Really? <laughs> Go off and fight your war somewhere else. Leave us alone. The new administration views the U.S.-Soviet rivalry as the world's central struggle. To the Reagan team, the cluster of tiny nations in Central America seems the right battleground. The president has put it very well when he said that the future of 100 million people from Panama to the open border on our south is at stake. And I think one thing we Americans need to do is to take Marxist-Leninists seriously. They view all of Central America as needing to be liberated. Okay, now this guy is another character. He's another, like, balding 80s government guy, and he's... <laughs> unintentionally based a lot of the time like this is probably his biggest <laughs> snippet of this documentary right here but he's talking about the marxist leninist philosophy purely viewed from his lens as an american working for the government like tidying up with the cia like he sees this as a as all a big threat he's talking about marxist leninist he's like you guys actually got to realize like they want like worldwide domination they want to get rid of capitalism and imperialism it's like yeah dude yes like also, <laughs> he also looks a lot like a serial killer Oh, very much. I mean, they all do. Come on. Yeah, I was going to say Dana Carvey in that one movie where he's the turtle. 
Oh, the Master of Disguises? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I haven't thought about that movie in like 15 years. What are you doing here? Am I not turtly enough for the Turtle Club? I, I need to rewatch that. Oh my god. And all the Sandinistas leaders have said that. So if Constantine Mengus was the National Security Council's chief Latin America strategist. Okay, look up the National Security Council and then imagine what the chief Latin American strategist would be doing for that organization. <laughs> Jesus. Because they would now be smuggling thousands of young Nicaraguan soldiers disguised as communist guerrillas from El Salvador into El Salvador and Guatemala. Then they would say, well, we've got to have a big shield to deter Guatemala and El Salvador from hitting us directly. And then when they had those countries under communist control, with Mexico having 80 million people, they would need an even bigger army from all of the Central American countries as they start to work with the Mexican internal far left to destabilize Mexico. And then, of course, at the, when they're at our border, they need an even bigger army because then they'd be uh, undertaking operations against the United States directly. Based as fuck. What you got, Ramiro? Sorry. I think it's a good point you mentioned that a lot of times, some, sometimes people on the right, even though we're on the left, sometimes people on the right, we point out the same realities. We're seeing the same things happen in real life, but we're approaching it from totally different perspectives. And to some degree, he was actually right. The Sandinista revolution was very influential in Central America and Mexico as well. What's interesting is that the Sandinista Revolution 1979, the victory, at the same time in El Salvador, between 1979 and 1982, the FMLN, the Faraondo Martí National Liberation Front, almost got to the point of liberating the entire country from a right-wing U.S.-backed dictatorship under Roberto Dalvisón, that was a, a fascist government. In Guatemala, the, the indigenous Maya people were inspired by the Sandinista Revolution and almost liberated Guatemala as well. And in Mexico, especially in southern Mexico, the roots of the Zapatista movement, a lot of people in the, the West know about the Zapatistas. Well, a lot of them took a lot of inspiration from the Sandinista revolution and actually Subcomandante Marcos, who was one of the early leaders of the Zapatista uprising in 94. And before that, he spent a lot of time in Nicaragua and El Salvador learning from the Sandinista revolution. So there's a lot of connections between these uprisings in Central America and Southern Mexico that are international and are Marxist Leninists in their nature. So to a certain degree, it's interesting. He's right. And obviously, as communists, we come at that from a, a good, like, that's a positive development because they were very scared at that time that there would yep. be a huge transnational revolution uprising. And one other thing I wanted to point out as well is the fact that the role of Zionism and evangelicalism at that time was really powerful because in the, in the 1980s, you know, Reagan was a very hardcore evangelical connected to the uh, the Moonies and, and the, the crazy ultra fascist evangelicals who were pro-Zionist, pro-Israel. Oh, yeah. And they worked directly with the state of Israel. Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister of Israel at the time, sold weapons to the fascist governments in Guatemala and El Salvador and also help train the Contras. Israel has a very strong role in Nicaragua and supporting the Contras and working with Reagan and using the evangelical churches as a base of right-wing organizing against the Catholic Sandinistas in the 80s. So that's another thing I wanted to point out that that's of interest. No, I mean, those are both really good points. Hey, shit, man. 
I think um, your first point, there's a lot in there as far as like the both the Marxist strategy and then the U.S. strategy in Latin America, because they're both viewing it, like you said, from just different sides of the same coin. Whereas like, I feel like the fear that you're seeing in a guy like this, who's talking about how we have to take these Marxists seriously, you have to really understand their strategy for building these armies in these Latin American countries. It's like the fear that you're seeing there and the way that they responded so heavy handedly to like just these poor farmers and these co-ops and everything. And just these really impoverished people shows that they, this was actually a big threat. This was a huge threat to American imperialism at the time, especially when you had the backing of the Soviets and everything. So it really was just showing how close we came to having like a full communist takeover of all of South America um, during that time. And unfortunately it didn't get there, uh, but Jaren, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, just since this is kind of my wheelhouse that I can help with as far as like the Zionist tie to it. So, I mean, first off, Reagan built the Star Wars defense system, which he gave to Israel, which is currently why Gaza never has a rocket hit Israel hardly at all. You know, people go out and look at it yeah. like it's Jewish space lasers. Yeah, it's Jewish space lasers, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but ironically built by an evangelical but. one of the other things though is like the the tie between america and israel and the 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 economic bastion that they upheld uh, uphold jointly is you know this isn't isolated to nicaragua either this this is i mean israel had direct support for pinochet as just as one example um and and all of this is to goad western hegemony into you know just perpetual reality for everyone um, and it's to directly suppress workers' movements. You know, in the Middle East, it takes the form of oil wars. In Latin America, it takes the form of something, quote-unquote, less direct. But it, it, it's always the same playbook. Yeah. Right, let me get back to this. And so, you see, from in the logic of Marxist-Leninist movements that see the entire planet as needing to come under communist control, yep. they will always need to have a huge army. Yep. When the Sandinistas triumphed, they did not disguise their contempt for the United States. For 35 years, America had supported the brutal Somoza dictatorship here. For decades, it had attacked Latin revolutions. They expect the same. Before Reagan came to power, we'd heard his political positions, and we knew the new government would be a threat to Nicaragua. It made hope more distant. It didn't kill it because you can't kill hope, but it made it more distant. And we were sure that when the Reagan administration took office, we will be faced with aggressive policies bent on destroying the Nicaraguan revolution. Um, Romero, so again, I'm only somewhat familiar with this whole thing. Like I said, I only started researching it for this episode this week. Um, but I know that Daniel Ortega is a major figure. Did you want to talk about him at all? Or maybe just like give us like a little brief uh, explanation of uh, how important he is as a character for Nicaragua? Yeah, definitely. Daniel Ortega is a leader, un the undisputed leader of the Sandinista Revolution today. He's still the president of Nicaragua alongside his wife, compañera Rosario Murillo, who both of them were guerrilla fighters in the Sandinista Revolution. Interestingly enough, Daniela Ortega is the last living president of a country building socialism that came to power in a guerrilla movement. So he's the last guerrilla president, so to speak, right? Because even, for example, Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who's the president of Cuba, 
he was from the second generation of Cubans after the Cuban Revolution, once Raul Castro stepped down. Venezuela obviously had a different route. They came to power in the electoral route. So Nicolas Maduro, although he's an OG, mad respect to Maduro. Um, but oh, he yeah. obviously, you know, did not come to power in an in a, in a armed revolution. Ortega was. He was there from the very beginning in the 60s. He saw, he was, he was alive. He met with Kim Il-sung. He met with Fidel Castro. He met with black revolutionaries in Africa. He met with Ho Chi Minh. I'm t- he's one of, he's a living legend who to this day is still applying socialism, building socialism. And he's seen everything from the 60s, 70s, 80s. And he has overcome the different methods of imperialist penetration and attacks He's seen it all. So I think he's somebody who unfortunately does not get a lot of the respect that he deserves on the left because, I mean, he himself was tortured and jailed for many years in a right-wing camp, in a, in a right-wing uh, prison camp by the Somoza regime, tortured his whole family, uh, his brother, his family was killed. Uh, he had to exile and flee to Cuba for many years. He came back. He helped lead the tendency within the, the Sandinista revolutions, because there were three main tendencies. There was the prolonged people's war tendency at that time that was more affiliated with the People's Republic of China, because again, we're, this is within the context of the Sino-Soviet split in the communist movement in the 70s and the 80s. You have the Soviet camp and you have the China camp, right? You have uh, the Soviet camp that uh, at this time in the 70s under uh, uh, Brezhnev and and others were saying, you know, let's build socialism peacefully through elections. They at that point had kind of stopped funding armed revolutions around the world. It was a different era of the Soviet Union. China at the time was taking a different approach. Some would argue a more ultra left approach in terms of promoting the, for example, Cambodia and uh, and Angola promoting the UNITA against the MPLA. But so there was different tendencies. There were there was like the prolonged people's war tendency, which is the more Maoist oriented tendency of the Sandinista revolution. There was the the tendency that was more ML or Catholic or liberation theology inspired. Ortega was part of the ten, the third tendency called the terceristas, which were basically like non-sectarian leftists. They're like, look, our goal is to liberate our country from US imperialism. Let's unite Marxist Leninist, Maoist. Catholic socialists, everybody together. And he's been able to successfully do that and maintain that unity, which is something that is very hard. I mean, even within the, the Western left, we all know how hard it is to maintain unity among people of different tendencies. And Daniel Ortega, I mean, he's a genius in terms of understanding how to maintain the balance of forces, how to keep people inspired, how to attack the new forms of imperialism, whether it's color revolutions, the, you know, the coup attempt in 2018, the contras, the, the directs of war. So he's seen it all and he's still present today. And, and I, I have a lot of respect for him. And if you check out my channel on, on YouTube, I have interviews with people just a few weeks ago, mind you, this is July 19th. So just a few weeks ago, interviewing Nicaraguans on the street who were crying, just t- talking about how, inspired they were by daniel ortega they weren't paid to be there they weren't you know brainwashed state workers how western media portrays them like in the dprk and stuff they were real working class indigenous black nicaraguans who have so much love for daniel ortega because of he's seen it all and he's defended their people against everything so 
I uh, that's some background on him. He's a he's a really interesting and underrated communist. He's he's definitely a communist. Badass. I mean, that's fantastic. I had no idea about most of that. Like, I only knew just, again, from my minimal research, I knew that um, I only knew that he was one of the original five in the provisional government when the Sandinistas finally overthrew Somoza. I still can't remember any of the other names because, again, my limited research here. But I didn't realize he was even still alive. And this makes me realize, like, how little we know about Nicaragua and the Nicaraguan Socialist Project. And how much of a tragedy that is, because I feel like this guy should have been getting a lot more recognition here among the Western left. And that, that kind of just reminds me of, you know, one of the things we noticed when we were really diving into Cuba. You know, we again, I've, I've said this before, we talk about, you know, so many Western leftists say, oh, well, revolution is never going to come, you know, in, in my generation. And it's like, man, there's just so many incredible revolutions. Revolutionary time is happening now in so many places and, and there are ways you can be supportive of it. And I think uh, Romero made a good point. Like one of the most important things in the belly of the beast is fighting and opposing, you know, the sanctions and do anything we can do here to just, you know, shed a light on it. So the reason I even took this sidebar about Dan Lotorico is because that, that is who was speaking, talking about seeing Ronald Reagan come into power and knowing that there was going to be some bad shit happening for Nicaragua as far as U.S. foreign policy. All right, we'll get back to the video. The Sandinistas declare solidarity with the Latin revolution that has survived, Cuba and Fidel Castro. To Washington policymakers, this is a portent of Soviet influence. To Nicaragua, it is a declaration of independence. Nicaragua demands, doesn't beg, but demands a new type of relationship. On the 19th of July... Miguel Descoto is the foreign minister of Nicaragua. Enough is enough. From now on, we want friendship. That means we want to relate on the basis of sovereign equality and legal equality. We may be very small. We are. We are small and impoverished. But we believe that we are entitled to the full exercise of our sovereignty. We do not accept this status that the U.S. government would like, has imposed and would like to, to maintain over us the status of a backyard nation. So again, that's the other character I was mentioning, who is the, um, the foreign minister of Nicaragua. Out of all the people they interview in this documentary, they interview all these Americans, all these white dudes who work in the military and CIA and intelligence agencies. This guy is the only one who seems somewhat reasonable, and he just makes the most basic demands that the United States should just treat Nicaragua like a sovereign nation, like its own people who has any kind of direction or ability to determine their own destiny as a country. And he just says some of the most basic stuff. And they, I don't know, I will say they don't frame him like he's a nut job, but it's just funny. Like the framing of this entire documentary, it's like this liberal kind of like, oh, what do we do? This is such a complicated situation. I don't, like, what do we do here? And it's like, it really just seems very simple. Like just give the people of Nicaragua, exactly what this guy is asking for um, because he's representing them and he's only asking for the most basic thing possible, which is just leave us the fuck alone. But we believe that we're entitled to the full exercise of our sovereignty. We do not accept this status that the U.S. government would like, has imposed and would like to, to maintain over us the status of a backyard nation. The question is how the two countries will work out their differences, by force or by diplomacy. Oh, and when no. the Sandinistas are Who caught knows? supplying weapons to the guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador, the United States is alarmed. 
we were worried about the effect of their uh, engaging in countries uh, on their borders and, and causing disruption. Very Lawrence Pizzullo was our ambassador to Nicaragua. Their concern was that they were surrounded by countries who were enemy states, especially to the north, uh, who were going to be hostile to them. Plus, they had romantic ties and more than that, real ties with some of those guerrilla groups who they knew and had, who had befriended them during their period in the, in the mountains. Uh, now, what you had to do was get these two different positions and through a, a patient discussion and understanding, have them, under, have them reach a point where there was an accord. While the U.S. ambassador negotiates, unknown to him, officials in Washington are pursuing a different strategy. Okay, so just real quick there. That other guy, I didn't even bother mentioning him as a character to begin with because he just, he doesn't really stand out. But he's a U.S. ambassador, and you can see all he says is some really middling bullshit that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense. He's like, oh, you have these groups and they're they're trying to get along and it's very complicated and they have these different loyalties. And it's like, dude, you're talking a bunch of bullshit. Like we can tell you're just talking out of both sides of your mouth, trying to make this seem like a more complicated situation than it really is, because in reality, it's very simple. Just six weeks after his inaugural on March 9th, 1981, President Reagan signs a secret directive. Nicaragua is declared a threat to El Salvador and ultimately to the United States. On authority of the president's signature, the CIA sends its operatives into the field. In the countries on Nicaragua's borders, small rebel armies have formed, financed by wealthy exiles, and composed largely of veterans of Somoza's dreaded National Guard. Take note of that. I mean, they just kind of say that, like, in the, even in their admittedly balanced framing of it, they're just saying, like, these small rebel groups have formed financed by wealthy exiles and uh, all these people who owned businesses that were like, had their property seized and collectivized. This is being honest about the fact that Reagan sanctioned it instead of the typical, oh, the CIA was just acting without permission. The CIA will secretly organize among the scattered groups, attempting to unify them into one opposition force to confront the Sandinistas. At the same time in Managua, Pizzullo warns Ortega that if Nicaragua wishes to avoid conflict with the United States and the loss of millions of dollars in U.S. aid, they must stop shipping arms to El Salvador. Ortega gets the message. We spoke to Pizzullo about the issue, and we asked that the information be shared, because we knew there was concern that Nicaraguan territory was being used to supply arms to the Salvadoran guerrillas. We kept in touch and uh, dismantled the place being used for the transport. Uh, Ramiro, I wanted to ask you if you had anything that you kind of shed some light, because this is not something that's covered in this documentary at all, because it focuses entirely on Nicaragua. But could you talk just a little bit about the relationship between El Salvador and Nicaragua and why that was so problematic for the U.S.? Just you don't have to be like super in depth, but just give us like a kind of like a brief overview, if you could. So. We have to keep in mind the geography. I think it's important for people familiar with Central America as well to take a look at a map of Central America. The nations of Central America are very small. We're talking about countries that are the size of El Salvador, for example, is like the size of New Jersey or New York, mm -hmm. right? Nicaragua is probably like the size of North and South Carolina combined. So we're talking about very 
small countries that are next to each other and are basically the same nation because the Central American flags, if you notice, they're all blue and white. Central America was one nation. And maybe we can go into this in a later episode about how the U.S. and the British imperialists purposely divided Central America into separate nations to make them more controllable. But we're talking about Mm -hmm. one people divided into several nations. And El Salvador and Nicaragua are very similar culturally, same with Honduras as well. And in El Salvador, you have a similar situation where you have a largely indigenous population that's poor, the 99% indigenous poor, and then that one wealthy white working class that is the the ruling class that is allied with the U.S. and and the imperialist powers. Nicaragua, a very similar situation. So obviously in El Salvador, you're going to have people saying, hey, you know, that's happening in Nicaragua. We can do the same here. And this goes back many years because even in the 1930s, Sandino, Augusto Cesar Sandino, who was the inspiration for the Sandinista revolution, in the 1930s, he worked very closely with a Salvadoran communist by the name of Farabundo Martí, which is the name of the FMLN, the Frente Farabundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional. Farabundo Martí founded the, the Communist Party of Central America in 1923. He was a Marxist-Leninist. It was the first communist party in Latin America. At that time, there was only one other communist party in Peru uh, that was founded by Jose Carlos Mariategui. So we're talking about one of the first communist leaders in Latin America, Farondo Martí, who worked very closely with Sandino. They were very inspired by Emiliano Zapata in Mexico as well. And actually, Farondo Martí and Sandino were very closely connected to the CPUSA and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And Farando Martí attended a lot of conferences in New York and Moscow for the communist internet, for the common turn at that time. So there's a lot of deep historical roots between the communist movement in El Salvador and Nicaragua that goes back all the way to the 20s under Stalin and, and internationals and the common turn. So obviously in, in El Salvador, you have people, the FMLN, that is learning directly from the Sandinista revolution, applying those same methods to their guerrilla warfare campaign. And at that time, the U.S. was very fearful of a revolution in El Salvador for one reason, A, because it's farther north, right, than Nicaragua. It's already moving upward toward Mexico. And also because that would revive any idea of a united central american socialist federation because ultimately the vision of sandino of farondo marti was to create a soviet union like federation in central america that would reunite these countries under a socialist federation the same way there was the russian soviet republic the ukrainian soviet republic the kazakh soviet republic you know it would be the nicaraguan the salvadoran the the honduran the guatemala and that was kind of the same model that they wanted to adapt locally to central america and ultimately that's why the us was very fearful of that that sort of reunification of central america in a very geopolitically strategic region that could control and cut off any us trade and interest between the atlantic and the pacific oceans Dude, you, you summed that up so well. That was awesome. Yeah, can you imagine? That is like the U.S.'s worst nightmare, like a Soviet republic in South America with Cuba at the forefront of it. Like, I mean, Cuba just being there was bad enough, and just the amount of retaliation and just 
just like I said, heavy handedness that they they went after Cuba with. Uh, but go ahead, Jared. So there's there's this interesting thing that well, what we're referring to in South South Central and South America is balkanization, right? The imposing of strategic geographical lines to, that intentionally splinter the population. We we did it in the Middle East after the World Wars. We've done it in Central and South America. And what I find interesting from a historical perspective with the United States is the more the United States started giving its quote unquote freedoms, if we want to call them that, to, you know, uh, black people, to women, to Catholics, to Mormons, to all the people that we've oppressed, the more that we've been going outside of our borders and oppressing other people. And it's because we we tried these strategies at home and honed them at home and then started exporting them. The first nation that was balkanized in, by the United States was the United States. And that was done through a series of trial and errors of destroying Native American nations. And you can read about it from Vine Deloria Jr. or Roxanne Ortiz, or whoever, but you know, there were lines already drawn between the, the Sioux Indians and the Pawnee, or the Creek and the Cherokee, um, the Navajo and the Pueblo. And all of these were a means to destroy their federations, destroy their confederacies, destroy their trade lines, destroy their ability to interact and communicate with each other, and then impoverish them, um, which is ultimately the point of any kind of balkanization. Um, so that's really interesting to hear, like the relationship is between, you know, like, say, El Salvador and Nicaragua, because these are groups of people who had their own internal economies that have worked for who, who knows how long. And then the West comes in and does this, in my opinion, very much intentionally, and then scratches their head to the public up here about, well, why are they so poor and always fighting? Um, <laughs> And it, it's because we we know exactly what we're doing. This country has been an experiment in balkanization, so much so that Hitler literally modeled his machine after what we did to the Indians. Like, that's how far back this goes. Hell yeah. Hey, comrades, I actually have to dip out, um, but I look forward to the next episode. It's been really amazing talking with y'all. And um, yeah, if you have any, you have my email, you have my contact, hit me up anytime. I'm, I'd love to, to come back and, and continue talking about this. Um, sorry, I have to head out. But, um, but yeah, it's been really no, no, dope talking with you guys. Say, real quick, if you could just um, plug your social media just one more time so everybody can find you. Most definitely. So you can find me on YouTube. Just look me up. Ramiro Sebastian Funes, R-A-M-I-R-O. Sebastian Funes, F-U-N-E-Z. Um, on YouTube, you can subscribe to me, check out my documentary, Nicaragua Against Empire. I also have several videos from my recent trips to Nicaragua for interviewing people, interviewing people on the streets, former guerrilla fighters, former... I actually even have an interview that's going to come out soon with a former Contra who later became a Sandinista after seeing wow. the progress made under the Sandinista Damn. government. So that'll come out soon. Okay. So check out my channel. Uh, I'm only on YouTube. I, I got off of social media just uh, for personal reasons. I, I felt it got kind of toxic. And so I'm only on YouTube now. But you, you, yeah, <laughs> you can check me out, out on YouTube. And, uh, and I really appreciate uh, talking with you, comrades. And take care. Ramiro, thanks so much. We'll see, you, we'll see you soon. Of course. Take care. Oh, yeah, man. Appreciate you coming. Peace out, comrades. All right, James. Now James has to drop exactly that much knowledge <laughs> at all times. Really, really session bar. Yeah. 
Well, then, shit, since we don't have Ramiro for the rest of the episode, um, let's take a second. And I wanted to just talk about James because, I, I, you know, again, this is what I was going to say before we had, like, our technical difficulties. But, like, Sterling, I know this is, like, a very not professional podcast, but this is our first episode after, like, the Rev left one. So we should probably, like, oh, hold on. We lost the, we lost the other bot. Bye. <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's another. I know, dude. I know. Professional as fuck, dude. What I was going to say is, Sterling, I didn't realize that we were having... I mean, I, I can't even blame you. It's my own fault. I'm trying to blame you, but it's really my fault for not looking at the, uh, the chats. But I didn't realize we were having both James and Romero on tonight, and I didn't know that Romero had made a fucking documentary about Nicaragua. That was embarrassing as fuck. But also, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take a minute. James, let's talk about your social media presence and everything and how you went viral with that with um that fucking CIA video. But I think you you had said you had gone viral before that a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, thanks again for having me on. I guess I, I kind of like last second. I was supposed to go on a little earlier and I got like a cold and nah, disappeared okay. for a couple of weeks and then told Sterling. Dude, if you get a cold back, right but... now, that shit is terrifying. I don't know about you, but I haven't gotten a cold in a year and a half and I'm <laughs> happy about it because I'd be scared of shit. I know. It's so taboo. I'm like not even sure what to tell my coworkers. Like, I swear, guys, it's a cold. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, uh, social media has been fun. I like literally never really did anything like content wise before. I think I like downloaded TikTok like literally like two weeks into that like first month of the pandemic in like March last year. Um, and then I posted like a few videos and I think like my third, third one went like viral, which like took me by surprise. And yeah, just like climbed to like a million and a half views, uh, which is really interesting. I feel like it was like a, a bit of a uphill battle with like, I don't know, YouTube and Instagram with like getting visibility and just like getting some eyeballs and ears. Kind of ironic that like a Chinese app reinstilled the American dream, but uh, <laughs> which I love. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I mean, kind of just been like venting about everything from politics to just some you know more nonsensical stuff but definitely gravitated towards a lot of like left-wing kind of oriented content like everything from like when the george floyd like protests and riots were kicking off and through the election and you know up through today i feel like i try to take the whole south park mantra of just making fun of everybody um so it's it's been it's been fun and some videos have gone pretty viral and it's it's cool to see the TikTok community, um, yeah, loving it. Yeah, like TikTok embracing the, because I mean, your your content is, I mean, undeniably leftist. And, you know, we, we had a, another TikTok <laughs> guy on here not too long ago who's who I'm a big uh, fan of, and he's such a cool guy, Stock, uh, Scott Stark, who is uh, at the Johnny Cheese. And you, yeah, I, I, I love his stuff. It's so cool. But his, but his stuff is like, uh, is like U.S. politically left. You know, he's making fun of conservatives and he's kind of got like a more of a, a liberal position, even though it, I can tell like just since COVID, he's definitely started moving way more further left, which huge fan of. And it's funny, he'll like watch my memes, right. and, you know, he'll, he'll ask me questions about him. And I, I feel like I've even opened his eyes a little bit, to, you know, the pol- politics <laughs> on the left outside of the American left. But it, it's I, I, I definitely see why his stuff blows up. Uh, here, but it, it just so surprised me when I saw. I mean, because your content's great, but you just don't expect here in the U.S. to have that many people on this little TikTok app to be so open-minded and actually even get half of the jokes you make. 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you say that because I feel like it's such a challenge to like, like make leftist content that's like, like palpable for like the general audience. Like, I feel like I have to like, like if I make fun of, I don't know if it's something like anti-imperialist or if I'm making fun of liberals and conservative, if I'm making fun of liberals, I have to make fun of conservatives too, like in the same sentence. <laughs> so it, it's, it's interesting to figure out what makes, you know, people tick and like trying to make an audience for it um, because it feels niche, but then it, I, I get surprised too when I see like, like, oh shit, there's like a lot of people on here. And I guess part of it too is just like the data scientists over at TikTok and just know what they're doing. They figure out how, like, oh, it makes me wonder, they, they probably have some like, like, okay, this is the whole left wing hemisphere of TikTok users. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's been fun and it's surprising to see how many people are like open minded to that kind of that kind of a uh, perspective. Not so open minded, just uh, smoking crack on TikTok though. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I that took me. I was I was so bummed. I, I had it already. It went viral on Twitter, and then TikTok's like, nope. I tried reposting it. Yeah. Um, so I guess for people listening, I did the CIA video and um, there's like, I, I talk about the, you know, everything like from operation cyclone and condor to the Iran Contra scandal. And I, I try to put it all in one quick, easy video. And I've naturally have to like smoke crack and do heroin um, in the video. Uh, <laughs> but TikTok didn't <laughs> naturally TikTok didn't like it though. So <laughs> I like reposted it, but I like blurred it out and it seemed to stay up. So okay. And, um, yeah. and for, and for oh, well. our listeners, obviously he did not actually smoke crack, and it was so fucking apparent, and he parried it, he parried it so well that only a fucking imbecile would be like, "Damn, he's really smoking crack." He's, hold, <laughs> he's holding, a, he's he's holding a weed bowl. He's yeah. lighting the weed yeah. bowl from underneath, which would not light that, and then he's blowing out like <laughs> vape clouds, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, did he just really smoke oh crack?" My god. I know. I was, I was like, come on, guys. Like, you clearly see the carb and everything, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because the TikTok, like, marked the, like, the content violation description was, like, uh, like illegal activities and promoting unregulated goods. And I was like, oh, it's kind of a based take on CIA, on the CIA, maybe. Like, maybe they, maybe they get it. Like, they're, they're saying they're a criminal organization. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> but y'all are the ones that run drugs. <laughs> yeah I, man. Um, so, but I, i'm i'm glad it, it got some it caught up on on twitter i like went from like a few hundred followers to like ten thousand just yeah. from like that video which was kind of cool so excited to make some more stuff it was so sick dude. oh yeah yeah do you guys are you guys on tiktok or haven't made that that uh that trek no we should do that actually now nah, i'm too old I'm, yeah. I'm just so i'm so damn old like same abuse. We let Gosper run it. Yes, Gosper. Gosper would be incredible <laughs> on TikTok. I would. I would almost join TikTok to watch Gosper on it. I won't because again, so old. But oh, man, yeah, it's funny because I was. A, I was the same way. Like I. I don't even. Uh, it's funny because I'm always like trying to like pitch. I'll be like drunk with my friends. Like all of a sudden, like trying to pitch yeah. TikTok. Like, bro, give me your phone. But um, <laughs> I definitely have the same, like, I feel like I get, like, ads all the time for it on, like, Instagram and YouTube and whatnot. And I was just like, this is really cringy. It's just, like, teenagers and, like, dance videos and lip syncing. And then I was, like, surprised. Like, oh, there's, like, comedy skits and, like, some, like, funny, like, satirical videos. And then naturally the algorithm adjusted. And it was all very, like, leftist content, like, every few videos. And 
feel like if you guys were on it, you'd probably be surprised to see the kind of kind of stuff that comes to your feed. Interesting. That's pretty interesting. I'm pretty sure we'd be suppressed. <laughs> I'd get banned in like a day. <laughs> Just no, there's some really good shit on there. Like my Blaine's on there all the time, and she's always showing me shit. Like some lady the other day was debunking the quote-unquote labor shortage, saying that there is no labor shortage, and people literally just went and got better jobs, like conservatives had been trolling them to do for a decade, and <laughs> now they're just surprised by that. Funny how uh, that as are the employers that were doing subpar pay, you know? And I, I verified the information that she had, and yeah, it's like the unemployment rates are more or less the same as they have been, maybe a little bit more, but like, it's nothing. The line at your Burger King is not because of COVID. It's because people got fucking sick of working at Burger King. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spitting on your onion rings. And that may have been spawned by COVID, but, like, the results are still the same. Yeah, exactly. And part of me wants to, like, download TikTok on another phone and then just, like, try to turn it into, like, a Republican, like, content feed. Because I feel like I'm in such a, like, echo chamber sometimes that I'm, like, I forget there's a whole other pool of content that's just, like, ironically unbashfully. <laughs> no, that content sucks, dude. Yeah. It's not worth it. I, also, I, <laughs> I always see it come back on my feeds as, like, duets, you know, people making fun of it. It's just, like, so like interesting to me there's just the whole fucking side of tiktok that's just all this like garbage content yeah it's funny i think it's interesting to note that like how leftists get suppressed on tiktok which is supposedly this like chinese run app that's controlled by the communists right it's like i feel yeah, like conservatives I, get it way worse like my girlfriend will show me like these conservative videos every now and then on tiktok and people just shitting on them in the comments good does yeah. uh does Xi Jinping have a TikTok? <laughs> no, uh, Big Daddy Xi does not. I would be have following him if he did, dude. I would have TikTok. <laughs> um, yeah, I've definitely heard like a lot of people left it. Uh, actually, yeah, like everybody really. I like I follow a lot of obviously other like leftist creators and I don't know if it's like the algorithm or if it's like people doing like mass reporting. But yeah, like people just get like dings every once in a while. And they're like, yeah, I'm banned for another week. Um, but then obviously yeah, like Midwestern Marxists got banned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was hearing about that. It's pretty frustrating. I got banned a couple times. Um, I had like old videos. It was weird. Like videos I posted like a year, year and a half ago, all of a sudden like got flagged and like another one got flagged like sequentially. And then it's like, Hey, you can't post for the weekend. I'm like, oh, okay. Jesus. So I don't know. They're still working out the kinks. Yeah, like I, I had a couple more more questions about uh, even your background before TikTok. You know, uh, first of all, I mean, you you obviously are young younger than all of us. Do you mind me asking your age? Yeah, uh, let's see. I just turned twenty eight this this month. Oh well, baby so, face, man. Yeah, I'm, I got the I'm, I'm half I'm half Asian, so maybe the the Asian don't raise in jeans or, or... yeah, me too. Oh really? Oh, yeah. Hey, what, what? Yeah, half Filipino. Oh shit, me too. Hell yeah. <laughs> it was meant to be. Hey. <laughs> hey. Hell yeah. That's, that's funny. I knew I liked you for some reason. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah, yeah you, well. you really, obviously, you have a good understanding of just a ton of stuff. And like, I know why all of us on the podcast have, have our education. Either Jaron has taught us single-handedly or we're forced uh. to learn <laughs> or we're first forced to learn our topics right before the episode and that's kind of how we get a, a, a lot of our knowledge but i'm, I'm kind of curious what do you think i do <laughs> <laughs>
I'll say I I only know a lot of stuff because I also argue with libs a lot online. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of curious, like you know, what what got you into looking into like revolutionary, you know, philosophies and stuff like that? Like, I mean, was you kind of study in college, or is it a family thing, or you know, how how did you yeah. get into all of it? Oh man, I mean, it's a good question. I and I, I'd be I'd be curious what Ward's experiences too, because I you know I grew up in a, a very conservative like my dad's like your very typical like uh, like Republican libertarian like white guy um, from the U.S. Yeah. My mom's like traditional like old school Catholic Filipina, uh, so I was kind of raised in that environment and lots of Fox News. Um, you know, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly, oh, no, the O'Reilly no. factor. Just... Wait, are we the same? <laughs> are we one? Are we the same person right now? It's always, it's I, always all those things for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was kind of the environment I grew up in, but I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of just, you know, as I got older, I started like, I'd hear like liberal talking points and that's, that started to resonate with me. And then as I got through college, I started like, you know, tuning in a bit more to like progressive and then leftist kind of views. Um, and then definitely like, you know, I'd consider myself a pretty young, like leftist. I'm still trying to learn a lot. Um, so, you know, don't know all my shit, but I feel like, you know, even the, the election and the pandemic have <laughs> definitely like radicalized me, so to speak. And yeah. it's, it's yeah. definitely piqued my interest. I feel like TikTok's a great outlet. Cause I'm like trying to like, teach through learning i'll try to like learn about a subject before i like talk about it um so that was kind of like my my full you know avoiding getting red pilled into <laughs> becoming <laughs> just another young republican <laughs> that is the fork in the road man yeah yep. yeah i love all the people that went down like the anti-sjw route and then they were like Wait, this shit's bullshit, and just fucking went far left because of it. Double the fuck down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's wild. I had a, like a Filipino friend in, in high school, and he like came like very full Republican, like Trump supporter. It's just like interesting watching people you grew up with like go like one way or the other. I feel like the pandemic just radical. Like I, I have friends that got like like not a lot of friends, but like I know some people that are like you know dabbling like QAnon shit, and then some people are just like. <laughs> like communists and it's just like and yeah it's 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 a crazy time yeah there's like one person from my high school that like i'm semi in contact with and that's only because she follows me because like i post dope ass commie memes like <laughs> other than that everyone's cut me out because they're fucking right super far hard right I'm, I'm happy that like my like my current work like i work in in marketing like in advertising and i've been like in different like advertising agencies and like my current job and my last job like both had like another leftist which is really funny because like they'd be they'd we'd be friends on facebook and they'd be sharing like some like communist memes i'm like oh hell yeah like okay <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we all like came from really if you're American and you're a leftist, the chances that you came about that like came from that from like a familial way are really slim. Like <laughs> I was brought up as Zionist, dude. Like <laughs> I was gonna say, like, did y'all watch um The Black Messiah? Oh yeah. Yeah, and like when he's meeting with uh Bobby Seal in like the jail and he's like this is because it's a fuck you to your dad, right? It's like, oh, all you fucking, like, Western, like, white kids. It's like, grew up with a conservative dad who was really controlling. And, like, this is a fuck you to your dad. It's like, it's not the same that I've dealt with. You know what I mean? It's not a phase, Ward. 
<laughs> so are are you saying that every leftist in the US we just all have daddy issues? That's just the uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, the hot take for the night. You should do a survey for your for your listeners. Oh no! <laughs> oh god! Well, it, it makes us, it it makes a lot of sense, you know, with Jaron being the most well adjusted of all of us. Uh, I mean, my my dad's my dad's an aging hippie dude, so he like I think he like knew shit was wrong for a long time, but wasn't really sure what was wrong, and then he just started like distrusting and hating everything which is probably why i'm an anarchist you know just permanent contrarian i've i've turned into my father so i don't know if that's good or bad you know what jaron like you bring up a lot of south park and i'm not super versed on south park at least in the later years like i definitely watched it you know early on but the one episode i did catch that really sticks with me was when one of the kids starts hearing new music and it just sounds like fart noises to him. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, I just don't like this music. And they're like, yeah, that means you're getting old. That's just kind of what happens. Like, you know, you, new music just sounds bad to you. And then he's like, well, what, do, what does it mean if like everything sounds bad? Like even the stuff that I did like before, it's like, oh, that just means you're a cynic. It's like, oh, no. And I think that's the territory that I've been in for a while. Like, <laughs> it, it just makes me think of the... Uh... The like the OG Simpsons clip where Abe Simpson is like, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. <laughs> now what is it? Or what what I was with is no longer it. And what is it is weird and scary to me. <laughs> yeah, dude. <And> it'll <laughs> happen to you. That's the worst part, dude. <laughs> oh, I'm so old. It's so fucking true though. Yeah. Like look, I'm not on fucking TikTok. That shit's weird and scary to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm on TikTok all the time, but I have a profile that's a bunch of random numbers and letters, and I don't post anything because I just want to see what's going on. Like, just tip, dip your toes in; the water's warm. It's it's a what fun is time. You got, anyway, you gotta you gotta give it like a week when you. I, I always tell people this: the down on TikTok because it's gonna be like hitting you with like really random shit. You gotta like give it a few days to adjust. Just I, I forgot oh, no, how I mean, it was. Don't get me wrong; I love TikTok. Like even at the age of I'm 37. I love TikTok. I, I like my attention span is perfectly suited for TikTok. I just want to see like one minute videos and then I would get on to the next one. And I want it to be like a, a random variation of different things. I want it to be like some people doing the milk crate challenge and then also <laughs> like some shit about like space or something like and then cute animals the next. But I also will say like <laughs> the way that like my wife and I communicate most of the time through text messages is mostly TikTok videos. Like we text each other TikTok videos probably more than we talk about our kids. And that's just like, but at the same time, that doesn't mean thanks that I capitalism. feel. Yeah, well, no, thanks, uh, CCP or CPC. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. You get that shit right, Mike. I will get it right, you stickler. <laughs> Those kids can't do the crate challenge. I mean, come on. Um, but that being said, I still don't feel confident enough to post to TikTok. Like, I don't feel like I've understood the algorithm and the mindset of TikTok enough to really go viral there. Like Instagram is my thing. I know leftist memes. That's like, I'm good at that. I definitely know I can post some leftist memes and people are going to like them. Enough people have my same sense of humor when it comes to Marxism that like I can do well over there. But TikTok, it's a whole nother world. And that's where I start to feel really old because I'm like, how do I make it like, I don't even know how you guys do all these jump cut videos. Like that's when I really start to feel ancient. <laughs> you do everything from your phone or do you kind of use video editing software? Yeah, I I literally just use my like phone, uh, just my iPhone, and then I'll like I'm like super cheap. I'm like I haven't made the step to actually like buy some, you know, like Adobe Premiere or something. So I just found like a free app. Like I just it's like called InShot. 
I just found the app store. And I was like, oh, okay, it's Scala basic editing. So like, that's literally all I use, like that and a tripod and a, and a light. But um, yeah, it's just me. <laughs> that's, that's dope. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, you know why you do so well on Instagram? It's because the like average age range is 25 to 40. Which is my mindset, definitely. Like, I'm, I feel yeah. like I'm 23, you know, as far as my <laughs> sense of humor is concerned. It's very, like, immature, like, lowbrow, like... Yeah. <laughs> you know, my favorite is when, when, like, Mike posts something that's very clearly, like, a joke or hyperbolic or whatever, and the comments just fucking turn into a wreck yeah. over it. I think it's... Oh, yeah. Do like... I used to do the same thing, especially when I was straw man anarchists and just like post that shit. But they've caught on. They no longer comment on those posts. Yeah. It is very upsetting. Hey, I didn't I didn't let on about that. All right. I didn't inform them. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I think it's funny, like when, when we kind of first got started, you know, we had uh, a, a lot of other Instagram comrades that I feel like were much closer to our circle. And since we we've gotten further and further and gotten more and more openly Marxist Leninist, uh, I'll see Mike post like some shit like you know Stalin did nothing wrong, and fucking and just watch like the comrades that we were like so close with. I'm not gonna name you motherfuckers, but you know who you are. That just get on there with some fucking rad lib ass takes, and it's like I, I we've seen you know some MLs just since we started go like super anarchist. And not sitting on anarchism, but, you know, like there's there are very different camps in anarchism. You have the Jarens, who are the greatest of all of us. And then, then you have like just the fucking textbook anarchities. And oh, my God. Authority bad. Yeah. The ones that are like, fuck theory. <laughs> Yo, shout out to uh, is reading a state. Shout out to leftist shit for going full Marxist and learning the error of their ways. <laughs> I don't remember doing this. Hold on. I just wanted to, to give them a shout out because I don't remember doing this, but I don't know if you guys happen to see this earlier today. Apparently, like I called this person cringe on the podcast. And again, I, I, I feel bad for it. But. <laughs> You're like, when the fuck did I even do that? I was like, I don't even remember when you called somebody cringe. Well, I feel like they must have a different username than they did then because I feel like I would remember that. But so the Instagram account leftist shit uh, separated by an underscore. So it's leftist underscore shit. The page is great. Love the stuff they post. Fantastic. And they just posted this thing today saying that they are now a Marxist-Leninist. They're no longer an anarchist and they've read some theory and they've moved over to the ML camp. And I just said based and I shared it in the discord. I was so happy to see it. I was like, share it to my stories. Like, this is like exactly what we want to see. We want to see people engaging with theory, moving from the like Western leftist perspective, thinking that all government authority is just bad. And, you know, thinking that like commies killed millions to realizing that those millions were fascist and they deserved it. Like, that's what you want to see. You want to see that kind of leftward movement. And, uh, and then they respond to me. They said, yo, I love your podcast. And you called me cringe in my anarchist phase. So we've come full circle, LMAO. I'm like, oh, shit. Like, and, I, and I just Fantastic. I said, oh, no, did I shit? Sorry. But glad to see you came around. And thank you. Glad to see you listening. Yeah. That's what this podcast is all about. Turning people leftist. Even if we call them cringe. Yeah. You know, well, we've. If we're calling them crazy, they're probably rad lips. In my defense, I don't remember doing that. I mean, was that page, like, did that used to be literally a Noam Chomsky page? That's the only page I remember insulting, like, vocally on the podcast. Like, I Well, think, if it was a Noam Chomsky page, that's, that's okay. It's warranted. Yeah. It's pretty fucking cringe. I think you might be on the money, because I have not seen that page around, and I never remembered following leftist shit, and I remember he 
they sorry i don't know their uh pronouns i remember they yeah, were posting a lot of shit that i was like damn that's cringe as fuck and it, it was cringe i think i unfollowed them hell, for that reason it may have been me that called them cringe because i, I don't i mean i just say shit we definitely we if it's that same page we definitely both were not nice if, i'll put it that way if, yeah if it was the noam chomsky the literally noam chomsky that was expert level cringe that was like are you getting paid to be this cringe? This is commitment cringe. But I, I've said, and then for anybody who wants to go check it out, like I'm sure we're probably going to get some new listeners. So this is the first episode after Rev left, but that would probably be our first or second episode um, talking about whether Antifa are the real fascists. That was with the Dixieland and the proletariat guys. Also, Rev left guests. So it's super based. Yeah, dude, I'm so proud of them. Like, dude, coming dude, up. It's, it's awesome. You love to see it. Those guys are awesome. Yeah. When it rains, it pours. But leftist shit, if I called leftist shit cringe and it was not because you were literally Chomsky, then my, my bad, unless it was cringe, in which case it stands. But I'm glad that you're, you're now coming, coming <laughs> over to the ML side. Yeah, you're now based. You're no longer cringe. That's how it works. <laughs> All right. So unless you guys have anything else, we can wrap it up there. I'm, I'm good. I need some sleep. All right, cool. in a, yeah, in a sounds week. good. All <laughs> right. Then uh, let's do some plugs. James, go ahead and plug your social media. Tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me on TikTok. I'm also on like Instagram and Twitter. I think, let's see, my Instagram, my TikTok is uh, jrewald15, uh, J-R-E-H-W-A-L-D-1-5. Twitter is just my name, James Rewald. Um, if you just Google me, you'll see all my socials there. But uh, yeah, come check me out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and again, for any of your listeners who are unfamiliar, if you just look up James Rewald and any of his social medias, you will see that one video that you definitely have seen and maybe you don't realize he was the one responsible for it, but it's fucking phenomenal, especially if you're a leftist and you hate the CIA and you hate U.S. imperialism. It is the perfect one-minute encapsulation of what has been going on for all of our lives in the U.S. and South America, <laughs> the Middle East, everywhere. It's, it's fucking great. So congrats for doing that, man. Thank you for like, radicalizing these kids in the best way possible. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'll keep trying. Hell yeah, buddy. All right, let's get to the rest of them. Uh, Sterling, go ahead and plug the Twitter. Yeah, so our Twitter is at TurnLeftistPod. The backup is Mike's social security number. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Jaron, go ahead and plug your website. Uh, You can uh, get either of my books at my website, JaronProman.com. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. Recently, a bunch of people have actually bought my book, which is super kind of you guys, and it's going to help me pay to get the third one edited. She's an expensive editor, but she's awesome. And she's a comrade, which is great. So we're keeping money in the family here. And then also we're doing live readings of my book on our Patreon as well, which if you subscribe, you can keep up to date with that and the discussion episodes, which are super fun. Oh, yeah. All right. uh, Ward, go ahead and plug yourself. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. And yeah, I guess if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Oh, yeah. And then for Cosper, who was not able to join us tonight, their Patreon is patreon.com slash Cosper underscore C O S P E R. And then everything else, yeah, just find us on the link tree, link tree slash turn leftist. You can find me on Instagram at turn leftist 1312 or my backup turn leftist 1917. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Probably should read out the Patreon subscribers since I didn't do that last time. And we got a few new ones. Probably. Sorry. Um, James, you don't have to stick around for this. Sorry not to keep you. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. That's good. I'm going to go eat some dinner. <laughs> cool. Hey, well, thank you for joining us, man. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again. Later. See you guys.
Yeah, let me read out uh, our Patreon subscribers since uh, we got some new ones and we got some some good ones. I'm actually excited just for one in particular. They had a really good username. I want to make sure I got the most recent. I feel suspicious for a reason. No, it's 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 just funny. It's not good. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, it's really going to be hard to top Jean Claude Van Hans, but that's top tier. That's S tier for not sure. Like director at Langley or anything like that, doesn't? No, 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 no. <laughs> When you hear it, you'll know. Our next Patreon subscriber will now be that. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> God damn it. What have you done? Listen, if you do direct... No, I was about to say, if you do director at Langley, it better be like a, a high Patreon monthly thing. But no, I don't want to pressure... <laughs> I don't want to pressure anyone into doing anything and, and committing more money than you're comfortable with. We are still communists. We're okay. All the people who are like giving us these like crazy numbers, like twenty or thirty dollars a month, you guys fucking rule. You seriously don't have to do that. Like, we'll be unless your you are the director at Langley, and then <laughs> then give us the fucking money. <laughs> yeah, two hundred dollars if you're the director at Langley, at least. Bottom line, and then you can have Mike's social security number, <laughs> and then you already fucking have it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And if you did it, it's uh, eight six seven five three zero nine. <laughs> Come on, that's tired. <laughs> All right. So thanks again, as always, to our Patreon subscribers: James, Raven, Enigma, Not Drinking Water sixty nine. What? Mike, not me. Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jaron has the best opinions. Jared, Hayden, <laughs> <laughs> other Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro, you know marks. David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, other James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bovee Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Bill, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Thank you all. I like how many Jaren fan accounts we have. <laughs> it, right? Well, I know. So there's two Jareds. There's two, uh, two different people named Jared. Was Jaren, sorry, I wasn't looking at the video chat. Was Jaren not here when I said Jaren has the best opinions? No, Jaren was not here at all. Uh, you motherfucker. How dare you walk away when I read? Yeah, you missed it. The, what, okay. what happened? the payoff is that one of our Patreon subscribers' nickname is Jaren has the best opinions. That's fucking based as hell. I love that. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I feel so honored by that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that people think I'm smarter than I am. It makes me feel like, you know, riding on Adderall and, and hurting my heart was probably worth it. Yeah, <laughs> I will say. So, again, you know, since we have like a, a family of podcasts that are involved with ours now, including, uh, you know, Left Shelf, Caitlin's Conspiracy Corner, the Steely Fans podcast, um, and now fucking Rev Left. <laughs> Steely Fans. But I did go on uh, the Steely Fans podcast and we talked about that song Deacon Blues. And literally so all good. I talked about for like half an hour was like how bad I want to drink. I don't want to feel bad about it. <laughs> like basically like, um, yeah, yeah. The song Deacon Blues is about a guy who just like unironically decides that he's going to go be a piece of shit musician and just drink and do drugs and everything. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I was like, that's kind of the <laughs> dilemma we all have. Right. Like you guys are all like me. You guys are all like middling addicts that just, just try to keep it under control. Right. And they were all like, yeah, Mike, sure. We all feel the same way as you guys. Like, but, um, but no, yeah, sure. As they side eye each other, yeah. like, what the fuck do we get no, into to tonight? Be, to be fair, like, I still think the things I'm doing are soft drugs. I'm just really into them. But like, this, this stuff other people bring up are like ketamine. I'm like, all right, where are you even getting that? Like, where are you getting this ketamine and all these other, like, whatever. 
But um, Farm. don't be so suburban, Mike. <laughs> bro, I live in a cul-de-sac. I'm just fucking with you. I, I actually do live in a cul-de-sac. Um, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I seen it. <laughs> no, I feel like that's the demographic though, because I got to see I got to see Steely Dan with Walter Beckert before he died, like a couple years ago. Ooh, and I feel like the entire crowd was just the dude from Deacon Blues. Yeah, dude. Like functional alcoholics that embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like their wives that they drag to the show. <laughs> <laughs> but my point of even bringing that up was that like with the new IPCC report about climate change and how fucked we're all going to be in about five minutes, I don't feel bad about yeah. it anymore. Like, yeah. Just do whatever the fuck you want. Like, there's no reason to think Dude. about the future. Like, we have no reason. Just do whatever the... Don't fund your 401k. Don't think about anything going into the future because it doesn't fucking matter. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get that privilege. Sorry. You know what's really great is that you're that nihilistic and you will not be an anarchist. <laughs> I just- What's I, just, but, I, just, like, I need and I need an army. I need like an army of Marxist Leninists with a lot of arms to protect me from all the fucking fascists. That's why I can't be an anarchist because of that reality, dude. Dude, I've been pulling out all my profits from the stock market to buy fucking guns and ammo. Are you kidding me? Like alleged, the shit's here. Allegedly, um, in allegedly, allegedly, in Roblox, in Roblox, they know about Minecraft now. Yeah. I love how we all take turns just going on to like this crazy doom scrolling, like one at a time on each episode. One of us has. Do it. Why the future yeah, is fucked? Well, that's a reality. We all know. We're just trying to sugarcoat it and make it entertaining, so we can at least have a good time in the meantime. I guess. Yeah, then Sterling had me looking up like fucking beetles and shit the other week. Like Dude, what, the bark what, beetles are terrifying. The right? bark beetles are terrifying. I didn't even know I was scared Dude. of it, and I fucking Dude. got off talking. I was talking to you, and I get offline oh, and look up bark beetles, and I'm like, "Fuck!" It's three in the morning. <laughs> Wait, where did this come from? How did I hear about the bark beetle? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was about to say I didn't get in on this. I love doom scrolling. Yeah, we, Let's, that's how I got on here. We gotta do it. We gotta <laughs> do an episode on that. It's fucked. I mean, again, the bark the beetles. Future's, the, the future's fucked. Yeah, basically, I don't want to get in a huge tangent, but it's basically uh, they got these crazy bark beetles. There's like a, a little feedback loop going on in California as the wildfires get worse. There's less water in California. So the trees have access to less water. And when you're a tree and you're getting not enough water, you have two things. So typically these bark beetles burrow into the wood. And most people think of trees as just this thing that doesn't do anything and just kind of exists and, and photosynthesizes. But trees actually are living creatures. Like a tree, like the these trees in California, they can actually harden the inside of their wood and they'll let bark beetles get inside of them and they will harden around them and smother them and kill the bark beetles. And that's how they actually survive these crazy bark beetle attacks. But the there's not enough water, they have to choose photosynthesis or defending themselves. And you can't not photosynthesize. So they have to sit there and let these bark beetles eat them and burrow into them and create larvae. Uh, and no. they can't fight them or kill themselves. So that's the, the choices the tree has to make. Either kill itself and take the bark beetles down or let the bark beetles burrow. And it's gotten so bad because as the bark beetles keep going, there's a point of no return. And the bark beetles passed that like 10 years ago. So there's nothing we can do. Like the scientists are all on the same page. And they're like, we can keep cutting these things down and trying to mitigate wildfires, but we can't stop the bark beetles. And their trajectory is to keep, is they're going to eat all of the forests in California, move all the way north, then start repeating this whole thing over again in Canada, and then start working down the East Coast 
repeat the whole thing over again and then start eating uh, inward to, to the Midwest. And that's, you know, part of the whole theory of, you know, the billionaires moving to the Midwest when the climate wars start because the coasts are going to become inhabitable. They're going to have no vegetation. They're going to be fucking deserts if they're not part of the ocean already. And doom scroll. <laughs> and I thought it was bad when I fucking made my buddy watch uh, Elysium and he's like oh shit like rich people would just go into space and fuck us I'm like dude they're doing that shit now with money like you know those fucking California wildfires that are just wrecking everybody's fucking lives like not rich people because they hire private firefighters to protect their homes yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got a video for you buddy all right, I got it. So that is the the final message that uh, we're gonna all sign off. But uh, I guess if we're gonna sign off with anything, it is eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. All right, see you guys. Yeah, shit sucks, everybody. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye.